Hello and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and this episode is a little different. I've been getting many requests to go into more depth with wine information on the podcast, and I thought a great topic to dive into would be talking about one of my favorite kinds of wine, rosé. It's summertime, and that means it's officially rosé season, but there's a lot of misinformation out there when it comes to pink wine, so I thought I'd take the opportunity to share some of the knowledge that I've painstakingly gleaned over the past many years about rosé. Then, I had Winston blind taste three rosés and pair art with them, and I think he did a great job, so I'm really excited to have you listen to this one. There is also a companion blog post that I wrote, which includes a more comprehensive list of rosés that I personally recommend, and that is available for free on the Patreon, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Before we begin, I've got some big thank yous to make. First, to our newest patron, Soap Lady, a longtime pairing listener whom I adore, and a Nebuchadnezzar-sized, that's a 15-liter bottle, by the way, thank you to Michael Beck, who upped his pledge to become our first master patron. Holy smokes! Thank you so much, Michael! And also thank you to our producers, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, and Allison Turi, none of whom mix red and white wine together to make rosé. And to our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, who never refers to rosé as rose wine. I am just absolutely humbled by all of our amazing patrons, and I've been having so much fun creating all this bonus content, whether it's mini-episodes, emailed personalized pairings, or live-streamed episodes, so come visit us at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast and check out what we've got going on there. Also, thank you to our sponsors for this week, Wink and ZipRecruiter. I'll tell you about all the amazing offers we've got going on in the mid-roll, but in case you're in a rush, go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast for $22 off your first order of awesome, delicious wine, and go to ziprecruiter.com slash pairing to post your first job for free. Last but not least, thank you for listening to Pairing, and don't forget to share us with your family, friends, and foes. I am very excited about this episode. It's something I'm very passionate about, and I would love for lots of people to take a listen to it. So help me spread the good word on Rosé. Without further ado, here is episode 41, The War of the Rosés. It's just you and me again, Winston. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're doing, we're, we're, this episode is going to be a little bit different from the majority of our other now over 40 episodes. Congratulations. That's crazy. Con- congratulations to you. You're a part of it too. We've come so far. We've come so far. But if you recall, I believe possibly the first episode we ever recorded, or definitely one of the first was the Kill Bill and Sangiovese episode. Sha-sha-sha! Which was super fun. But since then, we haven't really done an episode like that where we start with the wine and then pair things with it based on the wine itself. Anyway, that was always one of my intentions to do episodes like that, more episodes like that, but I haven't done that. But I've been getting more and more requests for more wine-centric episodes, and so I thought now would be the perfect time to talk about my favorite kind of wine, rosé. 
because because it is summertime and it is the it is the time for rosé and while i am of the opinion that rosé is a year year round beverage there are reasons why summer is specifically meant or rosé is specifically meant to be drunk in summer and i'll get to that okay all right i was gonna ask like why that as opposed to other kinds of white wine yeah why is this on (laughs) on most nights we drink all kinds of wine why on this night do we only drink (laughs) rosé is that like a passover reference yeah yeah that was a passover reference thank you also happy pride everybody it's pride day in santa fe here we went to the plaza. It was we very did. nice. We did. It was wonderful. I wore I wish... my Be Gay, Do Crime t-shirt that uh, Emma got me from Multitude yeah. Podcast merch. Yeah, it's the and Join the Party version of that. It's I got awesome. many compliments on many, it. Many, many compliments. It was terrific. And yeah, and you know, like, it, it just, it felt like a really nice summer day. And what could be more perfect to drink on a summer day than rosé? Nothing. I tell you, nothing. Nothing you say? Nothing I say. (laughs) However, um, not all rosés are the same. So, Winston, if you'll forgive me, I'm going to start by giving you some information about rosé, what to look for, why the time of year is important, why the vintage is important, and just general information like that. Drop drop knowledge. And then we're going to have a fun little blind tasting where Ooh. I know I know what the wines are, but I'm going to pour three different rosés for Winston, and you're going to tell me what you think of them, which one you like the best, and you're going to tell me, and we'll, we'll talk about what media we think we'd pair with those wines. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay, it's going to be so fun. Oh, my God. <laughs> Okay, so by the way, the part of the incentive to do this episode is I, at first, I just wrote a blog post on the Patreon and I made it, I made it exclusive to patrons at first, all about Rosé's, your guide to Rosé for 2019. However, I had so much fun writing it. I was like, I want everybody to be able to read this. So I made it public. So that is open to the public on the Patreon and I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And if you want to kind of, you know, if you're able to kind of follow along or reference that, most of what I'm going to talk about today is in that post. So with a few exceptions. So yeah, I just wanted to say that up front. Uh, you know, there's a little read along for this for this episode. And, uh, and, and yeah, and so basically, I've, I've often said this, if I could just be a rosé sommelier, I totally would. I had a reputation in I think all of the wine stores that I worked in, definitely at my last job where we we would, you know, during rosé, the height of rosé season, we would have like 40 to 50 rosés. And I had tasted almost all of them because I made it a point to have that be my thing, you know? <laughs> and so everybody's got a thing. I'm the rosé girl. And... Uh, that was, that's kind of, you know, one of my, my favorite things, one of my passions in the wine world because rosé is just fun, you know? And yes, there are different levels of quality for sure. There's different styles. There's there, you know, you can, you can talk about rosé to a certain extent, the way you talk about red and white wine, but it it is a little different. And I feel like in general, drinking rosé is more fun, less snobby. Can I ask you a question? Of course. 
What is the major difference, I guess, even just like flavor profile-wise mm-hmm, or whatever, mm-hmm. in, uh, production method-wise, mm-hmm. between rosé, which, you know, is generally accepted as like a good summer, drinkable, mm-hmm, quaffable mm-hmm. wine, and Zinfandel, which is like almost, it seems like almost universally well, looked down upon. So you bring, that's a nice little segue to my next point. So what you're talking about is actually, quote-unquote, white Zinfandel. So Zinfandel is a red grape, and there's plenty of Zinfandel out there that is just fine. So Zinfandel is um, just the name of a grape. Zinfandel is just the name of a grape. So so white Zinfandel specifically refers to this particular style of rosé, which gave rosé a bad name, hmm. sort of like in the 80s and 90s, I would say. I don't know that for sure, but definitely in the 90s, where quote-unquote, white Zinfandel, and I don't think it was even all made from Zinfandel, was this sweet, sugary, cheap crap. And that's what still I think most people think rosé is. And it is so untrue, and I've taken it upon myself. It is my personal calling to spread the word, spread the truth. Spread the good news, sister. About. (laughs) Testify. about uh, the truth about rosé, which is that most of it is dry. Most of it is well-made. Most of it is not that shitty stuff, like, you know, stay away from Sutter Home, Behringer, almost anything that says white Zinfandel. Some winemakers have kind of reclaimed white Zinfandel and actually make rosé from Zinfandel and call it white Zinfandel, and it's actually really good and really well made. The one I'm thinking of is a winemaker who I've met several times, Nate Reedy, who's also a master psalm, and he makes the smock shop wines in uh, in, Cal- in Oregon. I'm sorry. Do any of them have cool punny names like Redemption from Zen? No, no. But I would say Zinfandel probably has... Confess your sins. The most, yeah, it has the most like pun-related wine names for it like like just regular zinfandel just like the red red wine because there, there's like the poison zinfandel and <laughs> hey get it get it mine were better yeah they were way better you should you should become a wine marketeer <laughs> um okay but so that's what i wanted to start off with rosé the rosé that we're talking about is not that it is not the sweet stuff it is you know there are varying levels of kind of juiciness and sometimes a little bit of sweetness to rosé but for the most part rosé is dry again on on a spectrum just like with red and white wine yeah and so there's just all various range of styles and quality but as long as you're staying away from that that other stuff you should be good and in my opinion Rosés are some of the tastiest wines that you can get at that price point because most rosé is is not that expensive, relatively speaking. Most of it, I would say, falls in the $15 to $30 range. Nice. Yeah. There are exceptions. There's There are some that are cheaper and there are some that are more expensive. And I'm going to talk about a few of those. Um, but but that to me, that's really nice. And, it, and it's usually a safe bet, you know, if you're going out to a wine bar or dinner or if you're going to grab just a bottle of something at the wine store, usually rosé is pretty safe. Okay, a few, a few basics about rosé before we start talking about some more specifics. Number one, it's rosé. It's not rose. 
Even some people that I worked with in the wine industry would sometimes call it rose wine. No, no. If, if anything, like, call it pink wine. That, that I'm cool with. Though I actually have to say the concept of rose wine Well, yeah, and we were, actually, cool. we were actually talking about that in the Godzilla episode, whether they make wine from roses, which I'm sure someone does somewhere. Aren't they, but, like, deadly poisonous <laughs> roses? No. No? No, I don't think so. Okay. Oh, yeah, well... Um, no, rose hip can, is can, like for a bath. Yeah, but. no, you can eat rose petals there, I believe. Don't try this at home without, you know, Googling yeah. Consult? it. Consult? Yeah. <laughs> the internet. Consult the internet, your safest source of information. Um, but no, I'm pretty sure that you can get edible rose petals, I think. But yeah, so that's that's just a pet peeve of mine. You know, it's not a big deal, but it's, it's rosé. It comes from the French word rosé and one thing i'll talk about is that you know like in spain and italy argentina you know places where they speak other languages they call it rosato or rosado you know so it 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 corresponds to the word for pink in those languages so yeah so there's that um okay thing number two which i mentioned and i told you i would talk about is vintage so the thing about rosé is that it is made to be drunk young, like a lot of white wine, like most white wine out there is not really supposed to be aged very long, but rosé even more so is meant to be drunk as soon as possible. With a few exceptions, but for the most part, you're looking for the current vintage, which usually means the previous year. So this is 2019. Right now we want to be drinking 2018 rosés for the most part or even some 2019 rosés because in the southern hemisphere their their uh, harvest is in the spring as opposed to in the northern hemisphere where the harvest is in the fall oh cool yeah. i didn't know that yeah yeah so so if you find rosés from like argentina chile you mean it's in our spring yeah, our right. our yeah, our spring. Okay. Their fall. Yeah. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, because like, because that's how okay. because that's how <laughs> the climate works, which is crazy. Because the so. earth isn't flat. Yeah. Hey, guess what? But yeah, so so if you see you know, roses from Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, you know, anywhere anywhere in the southern hemisphere that makes wines, they're probably starting to arrive here now the 2019 rosés. Um, but for the most part, if you're looking from, you know, the United States, France, Italy, Spain, Austria, etc., which are all places I'm going to talk about, you're looking for 2018. 2017 should be fine. Um, it, de- it really depends. Just what happens with rosé when it, when it ages too long is it, it just kind of loses its, its spunk. It loses its vibrancy. So the, the fruit quality kind of gets dulled. It loses its acidity. It's how rosé is made, which I'm going to get to in just a second. It basically, it, it sees very little skin contact. So there's not a lot of structure to these wines. Most of the structure comes from the acidity, usually a little bit of tannin in there as well. But so they're not, they're not meant to age. Again, with a few exceptions, you know, there's always a chance that you could pick up a five-year-old rosé and it could still be tasting great. But but this is just a general guideline. Um, they're more like guidelines. <laughs> they're more like guidelines. Exactly. Um, but so, for example, like a couple years ago, someone brought over like this really nice, like pretty expensive German, I think it was German rosé that was like five years old. 
and it was horrible. It was absolutely disgusting. It had just like kind of like the best way I can describe it is it just like feel it, it felt like it had dissolved the flavor, the structure. There was nothing there that was like when a soda's I mean, gone flat. Or exactly. Something. Yeah, that's actually that's a great analogy. It's like it's like it went flat, even though it wasn't sparkling, but the flavor went flat. Yeah. Um, and Yuck. yeah, no fun. Nothing worse than that. So that's just that's a little pro tip. If you go to the wine store and they're having like a big sale on rosé, check the vintage on it because they might be trying to unload some uh, some wine that that just doesn't taste good anymore. And uh, that's that is my cautionary tale to you. Okay, so how how is rosé made? Another misconception, along with uh, the fact that all rosé is sweet, is that rosé is just made by blending red and white wine. That is not how it is made. There are a few different ways. I mean, I'm sure some of it is made that way. You, you, in general, you don't want to be drinking those rosés. And most of the rosés that you're going to find at good wine stores and restaurants and et cetera, et cetera, are not going to be made that way. They're going to be made in a few different ways. So the first and most common, the way, the way I like to describe it is rosé, most rosé is basically using red grapes to make a white wine. So you're using these red grapes, you're pressing them, they see a tiny bit of skin contact that gives it that that light pigment. Now when you say skin contact, yes. Can you go yeah, into a little yeah. detail so, about what so that what means? That, what that means basically is that means once the grapes themselves are pressed, they sit on their skins for a little bit. And that's called maceration. Okay. And yeah. And so red wine, obviously red grapes sit on their skins for quite a long time, while usually white grapes sit on their skins very little, if at all. So that's, oh, yeah. So that's, um, that's the maceration method. That is the most common method, I believe, of making rosé. So basically using generally red grapes, you can like, the, you can mix red and white grapes before they're pressed to make a rosé. You just can't mix a already fermented red wine and an already fermented white wine. Right, like like a mad scientist with two beakers. It, exactly, exactly. But you can you can mix the grapes before they're pressed. But gotcha. so that for the most part is how rosé is made. There's another method that's pretty common called the saunier method, which I believe means bleeding or to bleed. Um, and what that is, it's it's fairly similar, but basically it's when red grapes, they sit on their skins for a while, and then some of the juice is bled off, and that becomes rosé, but the rest of the grapes, they stay sitting on their skin. So what, what that does is two things. It creates this rosé that's usually a little bit darker and usually a little bit juicier, sometimes has more tannin to it. And then does it make for a drier red wine? It makes for a more intense and concentrated red wine. Oh, cool. So it often happens with grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon and Malbec, mm. maybe Syrah, that you, you want that intensity to them. They use that method everywhere, and that's not the, you know, the, the hard and fast rule. Like, there are some rosés made that way that are pretty light and elegant as well. But in general, they're a little bit more meaty. And then, oh yeah, there's there's like a... This confused me for the longest time. It was one of those things that I didn't know 
when I was working in the wine industry, but like I got to a certain point, I was like afraid to ask. But there's also this type of rosé called Vang Gris, which literally means gray wine. But yeah, it doesn't sound it, yeah, it doesn't sound great. But it's it's basically just rosé made in that first method, the maceration method, where it, it sees barely any skin contact, so it's really really light pink, um, and is usually made from Pinot Noir. Ah, not always, but often Pinot Noir. Would you like some gray wine? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I know that sounds like something in Game of Thrones, like effluence. Or yeah, something. yeah, it's not actually gray; it's just very, very light. Who knows? Who knows why they did that? Okay, the other big thing I want to talk about is the major regions to look out for, because at this point, there's just there's way too many specific producers of rosé for me to recommend every single one. I'm going to recommend a few of my favorites. And be sure to check out that post on the Patreon because I've got a pretty pretty good list there. But I do want to talk about some of the, the major regions for rosé so that if you're going to the wine store and you want to check out the label, if you see where the wine is from, that will tell you a lot about the rosé. It won't guarantee that it's good, but it, it's a good guide. It's a good guideline. These are just guidelines. So the most famous and probably most important region for rosé, though not necessarily my favorite, I like it a lot, is Provence in southern France. Provençal rosés, as we call them, that was sort of like, the, they were the forefront, the winemakers there were at the forefront of being like, no, rosé can be dry, it's elegant, it's beautiful, it's high quality wine, it's not this, you know, white Zinfandel shit. And Provençal rosés were, were kind of the most successful in the market starting in the, like, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s, I would want to say. Probably maybe. just, like, great with seafood. Oh, yeah, and... great with seafood. And, again, they're, they're very light. Usually they have a more kind of floral component to them. But the ones that I love from Provence have that really sharp acidity coupled with I like the ones that are are not too light that are that have a little bit more substance to them because some of them can be just kind of boring to me like like I'm not gonna be mad if I drink it I'm just not gonna be like excited about it Hmm. uh so but in general Provencal rosés are really really important um and the most important sub-region within Provence is a region called Bandole and those those wines those rosés tend to be, like I said, they have a little bit more intensity to the fruit quality to them. And that's the most kind of prestigious subregion within Provence. And the most famous producer in Bandol and possibly in all of Provence is Tempier, T-E-M-P-I-E-R. And they're very rare. They're very hard to get. They're highly allocated. But again, you know, like to find a Tempier rosé, I mean, I think they have a few different tiers maybe their most expensive might get up to like close to a hundred dollars i've I, I don't think i've seen that but they have they have some that are like thirty dollars if you see domain tempier grab it because it's really rare and it's delicious it you won't regret it i promise so yeah so that's provence and okay so yeah so that's provence then going a little bit up to the north up near the Rhone Valley. In the Rhone Valley, there is another subregion that, like Provence, is specifically dedicated to and known for its rosés. There are, 
I should clarify, there are wines made in Provence that are red and white as well, but they're really known for their rosés. And this other little region in the Rhone Valley called Tavel is also really known for its rosés. And the rosés there could not be more different. They are really deep in hue. They're like that really deep pink color. They've got a lot more tannin and structure to them because they see more skin contact. And they can get really high in alcohol for a rosé. They can be like 14, 14.5%, which is really high for, for a rosé. To me, they're not my favorite because they're so intense and kind of boozy tasting almost. They're really like one step away from being a red wine, but they are great with food. So I would definitely recommend trying a Tavel and seeing if you like it. If you like that like big intensity, big fruit, lots of tannin in a rosé. Would you have it with like a cheese plate maybe? You you could totally have it with it like a stinky cheese plate. Like oh. it's got that kind of intense flavor gotcha, to gotcha. it. Yeah, and like smoked meats and stuff like that. Okay. So yeah, not my not my absolute favorite, but not for for, you know, any fault of its own. It is what it's supposed to be and some people love it. But yeah, I just wanted to talk about a couple of smaller regions in France, since we're talking about France, that I actually prefer the rosés from. And those are in the Loire Valley in Chinon and Bourgogne. And those those rosés are usually made from Cabernet Franc. A common theme through this episode is going to be I often love the rosés made from the red grapes that I love. So weird. I know it's crazy. It's crazy that <laughs> it's almost like they're related or something, but yeah. And, and what I also, what I like, which may not be what you like listener, um, is I like rosés that have really intense fruit to them are very dry and very high in acidity. That's my jam. That's what I love because I think that those are really food friendly. I think that they, you know, you can drink them on their own, you know, they, they can kind of be all year round rosés. So that's, that's my personal preference. And these rosés that are made from Cabernet Franc in the Loire Valley definitely fall into that category of kind of like intense, high in acidity, delicious, yum. Okay, moving out of France, all of Italy. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I like, you know, I went in my, my little blog post that I wrote at first I was going to try to break it down, but then I was, I was just putting down like pretty much every region in Italy. Um, I will say though, like it's, um, Italian rosés from Piedmont that are made from Nebbiolo and from Tuscany that are made from Sangiovese. Those are definitely some of my favorites and they fall into that category again of intense fruit, high in acidity, yum, delicious. And, you know, people don't always think to go for them because at this point now, like more people are okay with the French Provençal style rosés, but they're still skeptical of like Italian and other regions, often because the rosés are a little bit darker and people think that darker means sweeter, which is not necessarily the case. It means, it often means more intense flavor, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's sweeter. There you go. But yeah, we'll talk more about Italian wines as uh, we may or may not taste one. What? What? Um, here's a fun one that you might not think about. Um, Corsica. Corsica makes really good rosés. And huh. 
Spoiler alert, a lot of them are made from the grape Neoluchu, which is basically Corsica's version of Sangiovese. So you know how I feel about Sangiovese. But yeah, if you see if you see a rosé from Corsica, try it. I love Corsican wine. It's really underrated. And also Napoleon's from there. Totally. Okay, well now we're going to get to one that's just for you, Winston. Spanish rosés. Mm. Oh, I actually... I am very torn. I'm very split with Spanish rosés because some of them I think are spectacular and some of them fall a little bit too much into that kind of juicy category for me that I'm not super, super crazy about. But often uh, rosés made from Tempranillo in Rioja, Winston's yeah. favorite. Everybody knows. We should we should have a, a like pairing drinking game. Like every time that you, you talk about Tempranillo, you have to... Take a sip of Tempranillo. Everyone would yeah. die. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but but yeah, so so rosés from Rioja. Um, I'll talk about a few later on that I especially love. But those those I love, and then there's there's a few here and there. But Spain is a little bit trickier because it's not like I mean in every you know there there are bad rosés in Italy. There are bad rosés in France. Like there's you know there's no rule. But I found for myself that I, I never quite know with Spanish rosés if I'm going to like it or not. So that's fun. You know, there's no rules. And then the last major rosé region that I'm going to talk about that's one of my favorites is Austria. And I'm not going to go into a ton of depth about Austria because we may or may not be having an episode coming out soon that's all about Austrian Österreich. Osterreich. But I am going to mention just briefly that the rosés from Austria are usually made from the grapes Blaufränkisch and Zweigelt. And we may or may not talk about them soon, too. There's also a, a ton of other regions. Um, there, there's a bunch of great rosés made in California. I'll talk about some of those, too. Uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, every, everywhere. I'm just talking about the ones that, are, that I've found that are my personal favorites. We actually had a pretty great sparkling rosé at the Grey Tasting Room the we other did, day. We did, we right, did, yeah. The grapes right here from New Mexico. We sure did, we sure did. I am gonna go pour us each a little bit of our first rosé. Okay, well, while past Emma goes and fills our cups, now seems like a great time to tell you about our sponsors for this week. Speaking of rosé, one of my favorite rosés that I've tried so far this summer is the Summer Water. It's from California, but definitely made in that Provencal style I was talking about. Super dry, light, and crisp, but with enough oomph to it that it just keeps me wanting more. And that is available through Wink, my new favorite wine subscription service. Winston and I are loving our Wink subscription because the wines that they have are delicious, well-priced, high-quality, and unique. You know me. I'm a snob, and I tend to turn my nose up at these things. But these wines are the real deal. Wink, like us, is committed to educating folks about wine and getting you to try things that you may never have heard of before. For example, they sent me a bottle of Porter & Plot Picpoul. Picpoul is one of my favorite, sort of obscure white grapes from southern France. But this one comes from Lodi in California, which is so cool! I've never had that before! And they've got tons of other wines on there. And me being the nerd that I am, I am excited to try them all, including several other delicious-looking rosés. All you have to do is take their short palate quiz, and then they'll create customized recommendations for you, and they deliver the wines right to your door. 
Once you try the wines, you get to rate them, and then they get an even more specific sense of what you like. You can switch out, add, or subtract wines at any time, and there's no membership fee and no commitment. You can skip your monthly shipments at any time, or you can get shipments more frequently. I seriously believe that everyone who likes wine should try Wink. And right now, Wink is offering our listeners $22 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast. And that's not all. I know you all hate paying for shipping, so Wink will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So take something off your to-do list. Just go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast to get $22 off your first order now. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash pairingpodcast. We are also sponsored this week by ZipRecruiter. Imagine if at all of those wine stores that I've worked at, there weren't someone like me who was willing to make huge sacrifices and taste almost all the rosés in the store. It would be hard to find someone with my qualifications, but ZipRecruiter makes it easy. Want to hire top talent for your company? Try ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience, and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S., This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash pairing, you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-A-I-R-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now, back to the show. Hi, listeners. This is Winston. Well, we have this time, just the two of us. I don't know. Hi, Cats? Kiki. Cats are cool. Kiki wants some. Oh. Well, anytime we open the fridge, she's like, Yeah, food? she's like, food? <laughs> she, just, she just ate, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So before we drink this first rosé, I should mention that um, I'm calling this episode War of the Rosés because, of course, it's awesome. Hi-yo. Um, I just want to clarify, I did not, I can't claim uh, that I came up with that a wine store that I worked at in Brooklyn had a an annual War of the Rosés where they would do kind of like what we're doing, but on a larger scale with like six different ros- six or seven different rosés that were brown bagged and customers would come in and taste all of them and pick their favorites. Okay, so this is rosé number one. So we're going to do the whole, the, whole, the whole thing. How does it look? Looks great. It's looks got, pretty light, got right? Got a little bit of legginess to it. Yeah, it's Just kind of a like little. a pale pink rose. Yeah, it's very pale, very translucent. Mm-hmm. Smells good. Mmm. Oh yeah, that's Ooh, tasty. That's got some tang to it. Yeah, it I like almost. That. I like I like rosés that almost have a little bit of citrus to yeah, them. Yeah, it was like, like almost a little sour. Yeah, even. it has it has a little bit like it's got you know. Pretty much all rosé, it's like all red wine has some note of cherry in it, you know, whether it's... Tart cherry, Tart yeah. cherry, black cherry, whatever it may be, you know, so most most rosés have that little quality of strawberry to them, which mm. I get, I get that little bit of strawberry. Um, some cranberry. Yeah, this one, this, this one's yeah, this tart. one, this one has a little bit more tartness to it while being pretty light still. Yeah, a little cranberry little little kind of 
underripe strawberry, perhaps. And, and pretty, you know, pretty bright acidity, but still nice and smooth and soft. Like, yeah. this, is, this is a crowd pleaser, I would say. Speaking of tarts, mm. here's what I propose. I almost just spat out my wine. <laughs> to pair this yeah. wine with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you legacy listeners, you real detectives <laughs> out there, will have heard me mention League of Legends from time to time. This is a video game. We can add that to the pairing drinking game every time Winston talks about <laughs> League of Legends. <laughs> okay. But so there is a, it's, a, if you don't know it, it's a mod. It's basically based off a mod from uh, Warcraft 3 that became very popular, led to a game called Defense of the Ancients, and then a studio called Riot Games took that idea and sort of appropriated it and made it their own, and now it's like one of the most popular video games in the world. And I play it because I'm a 33-year-old man and not a child. Uh, (laughs) A a 33-year-old man. (laughs) And um, so the character I like to play in it is a character named Miss Fortune. Oh and yes, she is Miss a, Fortune. She is a scarlet-haired bounty hunter from a pirate city, and she's beautiful and and graceful, and nobody ever sees her coming, and everybody's uh, who knows who actually knows about her is terrified of her, and she's on a quest for revenge against a pirate named Gangplank that killed her family. Uh, very much like Inigo Montoya. Nice. And um, she's gracious and smooth, and yeah. but she's acidic. She will she will gun you down. Well, that's so. I'm good... pairing the first one with Misfortune. With Misfortune from League of Legends. Yeah, don't I sue us, Riot. Be cool. Could you just be cool? They won't sue us for mentioning them. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna tell you what it is, and I'm gonna tell you the the story behind it, and we may find some other little pairings in there too. Okay. So this is a Provencal rosé. Oh. It is yeah. from the Côte de Provence, and it is from one of my favorite producers in Provence, Chateau de Parasol, P-E-Y-R-A-S-S-O-L. They are one of my absolute favorites, and I actually just did some research about them, and I knew some of this, but I didn't know all of this. So the, the coolest thing about Chateau de Parasol is that it was founded by the Knights Templar what? to protect crusaders uh, going to the Holy Land. Oh. So I figured we could also pair uh, one of Winston's favorite films kingdom of heaven that is with... not to say it is a good film but <laughs> i do really like it. it is a thoroughly medium film i think i think it's got a lot of strengths and a lot of weaknesses and i have issues with it but there's a lot about it that i love and there's a lot of beautiful sentiments in it yeah. um, oh and the battle so... scenes are tight yeah let's not kid around. oh totally totally but so okay so it was founded by the knights templar who were brought down by the King of France in 1311. Yep, he burned uh, their leader alive. Which Winston, font of historical information, who who was the king at that point of France? Oh my gosh, in 1311? Yeah. I don't know, but it had to be one of the, um, the dynasty that um, would still be in power later when Henry VIII was king of England. I forget what they were called. Louis X. Louis X. Louis X. And actually, this was probably right around, like, the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. Because Joan of Arc yeah, was probably. all, like, 14-something or other. 
I don't know nearly as much about medieval France as I should, and certainly not as much hey. as I know about medieval England and Well, this is the, the war kingdoms. the war of the roses, after all. True. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would okay. say this is more of a, a Lancaster I, rose I think than, so. a, than a York I rose. Think so. I think so. I think you're right. So, okay, so they were brought down by Louis X in 1311, and then the estate was taken over by the Knights of Malta, who maintained the vineyards flawlessly um, until... And who still exist today. Oh, do the they? Way. They still exist today, and there's a lot of conspiracy theories about them. If you want to dive down a Wikipedia hole, mm-hmm, there's a lot mm-hmm. of very wealthy, very powerful people who are actually members of the Order of the Knights of Malta. Whoa. And it's a whole big deal. There's not enough time to go into the yeah, Knights that, of Malta we'll, thing. We'll save that. We'll save that for another another episode. But so so then they they maintained it until the French Revolution and then when when the estate was taken over by the state of France. And the people of France. The people of France. So you know we could also pair perhaps since we've got a lot of English versus French tension going on here, also a tale of two cities. Tale of two cities. I think that would be. I would. I would totally read a tale of two cities or watch yeah. uh, some some or you, you know could, nice BBC. You could watch adaptation. The epic Russian film Waterloo, where an oh, entire yeah. division of the Red Army plays the extras um, for the French and the English at the Battle of Waterloo, and it's dope as hell. That's super cool. Okay, so then this estate was bought by the Rigold family. Sorry, my French is terrible. I apologize. In 1870, but it wasn't until about 100 years later in the late 1970s when Françoise Rigord, Françoise, I believe is how you would say it, um, she was one of the first women kind of at the forefront of the wine industry in her time, you know, like 40-something years ago. And she wrote a book called La Dame de Parasol, which... That sounds like fabulous to the me. The lady of the umbrella. The, yeah, I don't know if parasol actually means umbrella. Okay. The people yeah, who speak French tell no, it's not spelled like a parasol. Parasol. I don't. I don't know how. I don't know what it means. But she. I just think that sounds like a fabulous title. I want to read that book. So she was amazing and really brought. She was crucial in in kind of the Provençal wine movement of the, you know, kind of 80s and 90s. And then in the early 2000s, she sold the estate to someone whose name I didn't write down. But uh, he... <laughs> some jerk. Some jerk. Some jerk who's doing just a really awesome wine, a, a, a really awesome job making yeah. wine. <laughs> thanks, jerk. Yeah, thanks, jerk, for all the the delicious wine. Um, and so, okay, so that's, I thought, I just thought the, the history behind this estate was super cool. We're not going to go into this much depth for all of the wines, but I thought this was particularly interesting. Um, and I've been working with their wines for a really long time and they've got many different tiers. So one that I sold a bunch at my last job was called hashtag Lou. Um, or as the accountant for <laughs> our, our store called it, the Pound Lou. And it was a really pretty bottle. It was like clear, but it had a feather on it and every bottle had a different color feather on it. And so I collected like the pink one and the blue one and the black one. It was just really pretty. And that one was like, it was like 20 bucks a bottle and was really tasty, but not quite as good as this. This one is new, actually. This one is called... Reserve des Templiers, which uh, Templier is 
Templar. So the Knights oh, Templar. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And so this is this is the first vintage that they've made of this. And this is a 2018. It is very good. It's really good. I, I really like this. Um, and then they've got a couple higher tiers of rosé as well. The Commanderie de Parasol and Chateau Parasol. Um, so look out for anything by Parasol. They're all delicious. And this one I highly recommend. Reserve des Templiers. Treat yourself. Treat yourself. Oh yeah, also it is it is made mostly from the grape Senso, which um, I've talked about I've a little. I've never even heard of that. Senso is one of the, it's, it's one of the Rhone varietals, like from the Rhone Valley. You know, so Grenache, Syrah, Moved, Senso. And it, more and more I'm seeing rosés that are made mostly from Senso. But huh. in terms of red wine, you hardly ever see 100% Senso or something that's a majority Senso. But in rosés, yes. So, I don't know. Cool. Yeah, um, but it's also got some Grenache and Syrah, a little Moved, a little Roll, which is the French name for Vermentino. Oh. Those of you who are patrons, uh, I did a little Vermentino post a, a few weeks ago, so there you go. Um, and a little Cabernet Sauvignon in here, apparently. Mm. Yeah. Cool. So, very cool. All right, I think we're ready for wine number two. Right on. All right. Here's my glass. Where's your glass? <laughs> right here, my dear. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so okay, little Winston a, corner. <laughs> yeah, a few fun things about the Knights Templar, and listeners, feel free to correct me because I'm not looking at uh, their wiki page or anything right now. But um, one of the reasons the King of France burned the head of the Knights Templar alive and confiscated a bunch of their stuff is because they were wildly rich, like richer than most uh, kingdom treasuries in Europe at the time. And that's because they made a huge amount of money from protecting the so-called pilgrim roads. Um, so when like Christians from Europe or anywhere really were on their way to these holy sites in the Levant and what is now Israel and Syria and things like that, the Templars who were monk knights would basically protect these and then like charge, a, you know, charge money to like the king of Jerusalem and the pilgrims and all these other people. Um, and so they were rich as hell, and there's also a conspiracy theory that the surviving members of the Knights Templar formed the Freemason yeah. Order, the Order of Freemasons. And there's an infinite number of conspiracy theories about the Freemasons. Yeah. I've... And also, there's like they're in that Nicolas Cage movie. And <laughs> yeah. Um, National it, Treasure. I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's all fun stuff. The Knights Templar and the Knights House Spitlar, who don't get nearly as much press, are all pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but right. also they were, like, evil and, like, massacred Muslims. Oh, yeah. For oh, no yeah. Reason. For sure. For oh, sure. Why. Anyway, moving on. All right. We're on to wine number two now. This also uh, seems like a rosé to me. It is also uh, pink in hue, mm-hmm. one could say. But I would say this one is just a touch darker yeah, and it looks like it's got a little effervescence to yeah, it. Yeah, it does. It just, does. Just from almost. looking at it, you can see kind of the bubbles. Yep. All right, let's give it a shot. All right. Oh, I like that one more because yeah. there is a little bit of effervescence. It's in almost it. that little bit of effervescence, way higher acidity. Yeah. More intense fruit. There's also still a little bit of that citrus, though, like oh, that kind of like almost Meyer lemon kind of flavor. It's very to it. tart still, but yeah. it's got like the effervescence kind of gives it a different texture to it, which is nice. Yeah, and it just yeah, it it shares some notes with the previous one, but it's it's much more intense. I think kinda it's kind of like the, the previous one, but on 
speed or something. Right. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it's as diverse in terms of like its uh, yeah. profile. I think it's I think much it's a more little like sim- sharp. Yeah, I think it's a little simpler. It's not quite as nuanced as the last one, but it is really, really super intense. And yeah, that now all I can taste is that citrus. Yeah. And there is that little hint of effervescence to it too. Which nicely, I love. Nicely spotted, Winston. Hey, you're learning me up, right? Yes. All right. So, so given what we're talking about, kind of like this is much more intense citrus, little effervescence, acidity. What are you, what are you thinking? What are we? Ah, uh, okay. Um, it, it, nothing is like leaping immediately to mm-hmm, my mind, but mm-hmm. I'm sort of thinking like Star Trek and like the yeah. weird drinks that they make in Star Trek, like that Guinan is always making mm-hmm, in Next Gen where she's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, like this is a Florgon fizz and you have to like drink it all within 30 seconds or it disappears yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Like it's just kind of... It's just sort of out there. It's like a whole... I like that, though. It's a different, I like, like more exotic kind of I taste. think that sci-fi is a really good pairing for this one. I don't know exactly why, but it yeah. feels right. Or like so Babylon like, 5. Yeah, like some know. some space show. Maybe even Farscape. I don't oh, know. I which we have to finish. Oh, my God. Um, okay, so this is an Austrian... Oh! Osterreich! Osterreich! <laughs> um... And this is from Weingut Brundelmeier. And part of why I got this one specifically is because, listeners, as of last week, Winston is officially a lawyer. Cacao! <laughs> we, um, <laughs> and we went out to dinner to celebrate, and we got a bottle of Weingut Brundelmeier's Gruner Weltliner, and it was very, very delicious. Yeah. Um, they, Brundelmeier is one of my favorite producers, and so I and I and I actually hadn't had this one before, and so I wanted to try it. Fun fact: this one is a 2017, so it's a little bit older. It clearly hasn't lost its like its bite. Definitely not. It's possible that the like complex there might have been more complexity to it last year like in terms of the fruit components um i don't know i can't speak or it could just be like this um it's made from 100% zweigelt which i mentioned before um zweigelt one of my favorite austrian red grapes that is we've talked about genetic crosses before the grapes that are genetic crosses yeah. and zweigelt is one of those grapes actually it is a cross between blaufränkisch which I've talked about before, it is one of my absolute favorites, and a grape called Saint Laurent, which is very similar to Pinot Noir. So for this one, I did not find out as much uh, kind of long history or information, and part of that will be explained again in this later Austrian wine episode, why uh, most Austrian wine is pretty modern, but the the winery itself is based in a town called Lagenlois, which is about 70 kilometers northwest of Vienna in the wine region of Niederösterreich, which means Lower Austria, which is confusing because it's it's the furthest north maybe, east but region. Maybe it's, it's lower in it's altitude the lower, because the Alps it do actually, skirt into It actually Austria. refers to uh, the Danube River because oh. it is in the lower lower valley of the Danube River or something like that. Cool. Um, yeah, the fun facts. I like to think this is what Klingon blood wine tastes oh, like or yeah. whatever it is they yeah. drink. Like <laughs> The Klingon are like, we're so tough, but maybe it's just that it's like their wine is really sour. And <laughs> I fucking <laughs> love that. This is the Klingon wine. <laughs> <laughs> I, ah, Talani. I, ja. 
I love that. So I don't have a big long story behind it, but I do. I did want to share a quote from the from the owner and winemaker Willie Brundelmeier, um, and he says, "The art of winemaking consists of understanding a natural product grown on living soil in such a way that the metamorphosis from vine to grape to juice to wine is like a melody. The wine tells everything about the soil, the heat and cold." of storm and rain, the landscape, and the people involved from the beginning. I just thought that was a really beautiful, concise way of explaining how winemaking is kind of like making art. Yeah. So uh, I just thought that was nice. And here's another fun uh, history fact, now that you mentioned that the winemaker's name is Willie. Mm-hmm. Um, in World War One, or like around that era, all the crowned heads of Europe were basically related to each other. And so the King of England and the Kaiser of Germany, who was Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, had personal correspondence. And um, they also had personal correspondence with the Tsar of Russia, uh, Nikolai Romanov. Nikolas, yeah. Some Romanov. So, but basically they called each other, it was Cousin Willie mm-hmm. was the name of Kaiser Wilhelm and uh, Little Nicky was oh. the name of uh, Nicholas Romanov. Cousin Willie uh, and Little Nicky. Yeah, Love and then it. I forget what they called the uh, the king of England, like Georgie. Like, mm-hmm. I think it was a King George, so like a, like Cousin Georgie or Cousin Eddie or something like that. But it was all like, like millions of people are killing each other in the dirt, and these people are still writing letters like, Dear Willie, <laughs> <laughs> it sure would be great. You know? That's hilarious. <laughs> kind of. In a grim way. Also, just before I grab this this last wine, I did want to mention that little bit of effervescence is pretty indicative of a an Austrian rosé nice. and usually made from Zweigelt. Zweigelt in general can often have a little bit of effervescence to it. Just, just a little fun fact. Super cool. All right. I'm going to go grab that last wine. Last history corner with Winston. Yeah. All right. Um. So that was, I pretty much shot my wad on the history corner yeah, with okay. that cousin Willie thing um but if you haven't checked out hardcore history or the revolutions podcast by mike duncan uh those are all great i've been really into one called the ancient world uh, which will pop right up if you search for it and it's like it goes through all of you know bronze age and iron age history in uh, well, I mean, it, you know, it, it bounces around the world a little bit, and then it starts kind of focusing on the Roman world, but it goes through in, like, biblical detail everything that was going on basically through the fall of the Roman Empire. I'm not even halfway done with it now because it's been on since, like, 2014 or something, and it's phenomenal. Yeah, check those out. All right. All right, last, last one. But, last but not least. All right, so this one has a lot more um, yeah. legginess. It, it does like. have some nice legs, and it's and it's definitely a little bit darker. It's not super dark, no, but it's but it's the they've been getting progressively darker. They this have is been. the darkest one so far. Yeah, sure. yeah, and yeah, this is like a like a light vermilion, perhaps. Oh, in color. And I don't see any of that sort of trace of effervescence. Just no, looking at it. No, I don't see that um, either. All right, so let's all see. right, let's see. Oh dang. Mm, mm-hmm. That is wild. Yeah. Because it's got like a little bite on the tongue, but it's not effervescent. And it's not even that tart. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know, the mouthfeel of it is really good. It's well, got it's, a little bit more heft. 
Yeah, it's I definitely. Think, I think that's. I think that's what you're getting is that it's got a little bit more body to it. Yeah. It's may, um, maybe got a little tannin, and it's it's really interesting because because like the last one, the Austrian one, kind of hits your mouth and you get that citrus and intensity, and then it's just like all acidity. This one, it's almost like the acidity hits you and then it kind of mellows. Yeah, and there's it's like a little nice. bitterness in the middle yeah. and the finish is nice yeah. and light. This is like a, the most complex one by yeah, far. Yeah, I think so. And I think that it has um, a little bit more kind of like bright cherry fruit to it as well. Yeah. Like like it's got a little bit more, more fruit components to it than either of the last two. Okay, I don't know All why, right. but yeah. like inspiration yeah. has totally struck me, mm-hmm. and I am pairing this wine with Marjorie Tyrell. Oh, R.I.P. Marjorie Tyrell. She's so cool. She, you kind of think she has sinister motives. She's definitely willing to take one for the team. For sure. She's seductive. She's brilliant. She loves her family and cares about her gay brother deeply. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I always found that like sort of personally touching. Yeah. Um, and she even, I think, has like a little bit of affection for little old King Tommen. Yeah, uh, a little bit. <laughs> she, it's kind of weird that she like deflowers him at yep. 12 or 13 yep, 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 to yep, be. but hey yep. hey a medieval woman gotta do what a medieval woman gotta do i guess we're gonna put spoilers for game of thrones in this episode oh, yeah but um, um if i i assume you don't care if yeah you i yeah gotten through it, exactly marjorie tyrell but i do point. think i do think that in general this is a good Game of Thrones rosé. Yeah, maybe it's a it's it's like it's an arbor rosé. It's an arbor rosé, and also, ooh, the rose of Highgarden, mm-hmm. right? They're they're it's growing it's all, strong. It's is all, their house model? It's all related. It's all related. Also, I would say that this is a rosé that I could just drink and drink and drink because it, it, oh, it's, it's yeah. so because it's yeah. You can we drown often in talk we often talk about in the wine industry you know wines that lift up your palate instead of weighting them down and I feel like this is one that lifts up your palate and it's got enough structure and balance yeah. that like it's one that you can just you can just drink and drink and drink. I don't know if you planned it this way but I mm. gotta say you kind of went from like one good two better three best I almost. didn't well so okay so this is this is a rosé that we have had before and that I I do know. The other two, you know, I was familiar with the producers and many of their wines, but I hadn't had those specific wines. This one I have had and it is the Proprietà Sperino Rosa de Rosa Rosato. So this is coming from Piedmont in northern nice. Italy. And um and it is 85% Nebbiolo and 15% Vespolina, which is mostly a blending grape in Piedmont. You you see some hundred percent Vespolinas, but not very many. But yeah, so so Nebbiolo as a red wine, as we've talked about before, is fairly light in body, but intense, intense tannin, intense acidity, intense fruit components. Often, actually, people say that kind of like rose petal is a is a note for it's Nebbiolo. A really nice mix of the acidic and um, basic tastes yes like the bitterness and the acidity yeah really blend together really well and I agree. fun fact for listeners the kingdom of piedmont sardinia mm. is what eventually became the kingdom of italy after mm. unification which is very interesting again check out that vermentino post it's available to all one dollar patrons so hey pledge a buck to the patreon and you'll hear about more about the connection between sardinia and piedmont and uh, and uh, the great Vermentino. Anyway, just a quick plug. But 
but it's it's fascinating stuff. I remember I remember learning you telling me that, and I was like, that makes so much sense because there's like this wine connection there. I was um, we were like having a romantic dinner in Italy, and this is what a bastard I am. I was like, huh, Piedmont, interesting, and I like pulled out my phone and just started yeah, reading yeah. a Wikipedia article out loud at our romantic dinner in Florence because I'm. I'm not. The I don't best. remember. I don't remember that specifically. But I mean, that, it was still a great dinner. It was we had great. the burrata. I had the oh, schnitzel. It, oh, it was that dinner. Yeah, and you oh had, which God. actually was owned the... by a prince of the blood uh, from Habsburg the royal prince. from the Habsburg royal yeah, family. Yeah, it's all connected. It's all Yo, connected, man. man. And speaking of Tuscany, because we didn't actually go to Piedmont on our honeymoon, mm-hmm. we didn't go to that part of Italy, but we did go to Tuscany. We did go to Florence, and actually, I didn't know this, but the I don't think he's the winemaker, but he's the owner of this winery, Proprieta Sperino, in Lesona in Piedmont. He he's from there, but he is also the founder of one of the greatest and most prestigious Chianti and general Tuscan producers, Isole Eolena, in Tuscany. And I guess after he founded Isole Eolena, he decided he wanted to go back to Piedmont and make wine in Lesona, this part of Piedmont. And um, he makes, you probably don't remember, but we've had this wine from him called Uvaggio, and it's really, really good. It's Is a, it a it's, white? It's a red wine. It's a red, okay. Yeah, and it's, mostly again, mostly Nebbiolo. But yeah, check it out, listeners, Uvaggio. It's like usually about $30, $35 a bottle, but for, for Nebbiolo, that's fairly reasonable. And it's really, really yummy. So... Also, apparently, this comes from, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to get picked up. This will be interesting, but I'm hearing all sorts of stuff at the pool. <laughs> yeah, I can actually hear <laughs> you it, You can too. hear it, too? Okay, so it'll, it, this will be fun. The, the background noise is just, you know, summertime. But he comes from a this guy, um, Paolo Di Marchi, is his, or Paolo De Marchi. He comes from a family of doctors. Um, and for some reason, this reminds me, though I do think that... Game of Thrones is a good pairing for this wine, but also Chekhov, because I don't know if you know, but Anton Chekhov, the great Russian playwright, was a doctor, and so hmm, this I did just not know that. yeah, so this just reminds me of uh, you know kind of like coming from one vocation to go to another, like coming from a coming from a scientific background and following a passion, an artistic passionate background in a similar or, vein, yeah, an exact same cultural level, yeah, yeah. I would also pair this with Spider Man. <laughs> You know, he's he's just he's a scientist. Okay. Kid okay. Yeah. At the arts and okay, sciences. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. I'm with you now. And then I was he like, has to I become a superhero. I was like, I'm on board because I love Spider Man and I love this wine. So we're good. Ri- he's ridiculously <laughs> nice. And yes. Con- you know, yes. his media is consumable, but and he also has some kick ass. Oh him. fuck yeah! And also, we are totally gonna watch Spider Man uh, into the Spider Verse oh. tonight. Oh yeah, we stand. And we're probably going to be drinking this wine while we do it. So that, that, that'll be a great pairing. Full stand. Full stand. Cool. Well, so that's what I had. Um, I do have this. I just wanted to mention, I have this bottle of Vingri, the gray wine. Uh, <laughs> from, uh, <laughs> Speaking of is, Game of Thrones. Yeah, sounds yeah, like I, a know, plague I know, or right? I know. It's like, um, the, it's like the White Walkers grayscale, drink. Grayscale, yeah. <laughs> um, this this Vangri is from Robert Sinsky, who is one of the one of the most prestigious uh, producers in California in Carneros. And this is the wine that blew my mind when we moved to New Mexico because when I worked in Colorado, we would get one case of this wine per year. Per year, 
and it was that's how highly allocated it is and like we're pretty we were a pretty big deal store like we were owned by a master sommelier and we got one case of it and usually most of that case would be pre-sold you know to customers who wanted it right and then so that's what that was my experience with it so because it was always pre-sold i never got to taste it and then we were out we were at our local wine shop here in santa fe the other day and or this was like a couple weeks ago and i saw a stack of this wine at the wine store and i was like what the fuck is this shit how do you guys get all this? It's probably like, like all of New Mexico's yeah. allocation. Well, no, no, because it's at Whole Foods too. Oh, really? Like, so I'm sorry, I'm sorry to blow up your spot, Colorado, but New Mexico gets so much more of these highly, highly allocated wines. But anyway, I still mostly because we're better than you. <laughs> no, it's because the wine market is a lot smaller here. But that's okay. Um, yeah, that but, too. But we're definitely better. Totally. We have nothing against Colorado. No, we not love, at all. We loved I it. I went to school there. We loved it. <laughs> yeah. It was great. I'm just, um, I'm just being silly. But, but so, um, I, I haven't tasted this wine. I thought about opening it tonight, but it's a pretty expensive one, relatively speaking. It's like thirty five dollars a bottle, which for a rosé, like that's a that's a fair amount of wine. A uh, fair amount of wine. A fair amount of money. I've had a fair amount of wine. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fair but, amount of human <laughs> currency. <laughs> um. And, um, but I'm really excited to try it. I'll, uh, we'll see if maybe I get to it before this episode is released and I can record a little thing telling you how it is. But yeah, so I, I bought a bottle of it because I was like, oh my God, I, I can buy some. <laughs> I can, I can try it. But yeah, so that's, that's where we are. I have, you know, on, on that Patreon list is a whole, whole list of, of my favorite rosé producers, um, I just want to, because I know some people aren't going to go look at that, I just want to say a few of my favorites, because I would feel remiss if I didn't mention some of these. Possibly my favorite rosé in the whole world, it was our wedding wine. I don't know if you know that, um, because I maybe had a little bit of it, and because, it, you know, weddings are crazy. I'm not but sure I had any. <laughs> you probably didn't. But this was the the Il Poggione Brancato Rosato, which is also the rosé that we were drinking in the Kill Bill episode. It comes full circle. It's a Sangiovese-based rosé from Tuscany. Man, I hope this new Quentin Tarantino film is good. Oh, sh- I, sh- I really hope so, too. I've got such mixed feelings about it. Yeah, I did not but, enjoy Hateful Eight at all. Oh, neither did I. This one, I think... I think this one will at least be much more entertaining. Yeah. I don't want to get into it, but I have really weird feelings about all of these movies and shows coming out about uh, serial killers. Yeah. Like, what is that about? Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. Speaking of uh, Spain, we uh, I mentioned that some of my favorite Spanish rosés come from Rioja and are made from Tempranillo or Garnacha, both. Um, Muga makes a really great rosé, and Ostatu. Ostatu makes a really great rosé. They're not like a super well-known producer, but it's so good, and it's really inexpensive, and we couldn't get much of it. If you find the Ostatu Rosado, give it a try. Speaking of rosés that are inexpensive, but really good, um, the Olivares from Jumilla in Spain is like 10 bucks a bottle and it's delicious. So so if you do see that one go go try it. It's re- it's a it's a bargain. It's a bargain. What a bargain. What a bargain. In Austria, a couple other of my favorite rosés are from Ibi, that's just I B Y and Ingrid Groys, one of my main wine women crushes. She's amazing. Her rosé is unbelievable. 
Um, and then in, in Provence, um, there's, there's so many, there's so many to look out for. Parasol, I think is a really, really solid one. And I think the quality of Parasol, that's the producer that we were drinking. Uh, they're, they're just, to me, they're, they're one of the best. The AIX or A, as in A in Provence, that one is another one of my favorites. Though at this one, I used to like absolutely adore that wine. It like changed my life. And now I taste it and I'm like, eh. Also, this is another thing. Like not only does vintage matter in the sense that like how old the rosé is matters, but often like from year to year, as with red and white wines, the rosés will change. So like there was one year that I had the AIX and I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever had. I had it the next year and I was like, eh, eh. Or, or like even like, meh. and then I had it again the next year. And I was like, oh, this is great again. So, you know, like it really like vintage, the, the growing concerns, it really does make a difference. I, I swear, we're not just making it up to be pretentious. Um, <laughs> also, one of my favorite inexpensive Provencal style rosés, it's technically from the Languedoc, but the Montgrave rosé is, again, around $10 a bottle. And that one is really, really good. And then in California, apart from the Robert Sinsky Von Gris, there's also the Birichino Von Gris. That one is delicious. And the, again, wouldn't be an episode of pairing if I didn't mention my main woman wine crush, Angela Osborne. Her tribute to Grace Rosé made from 100% Grenache is beautiful. Again, a little bit more expensive, but if you're willing to splurge, it's worth it. And uh, that's... That is, uh, that's what I've got. Again, there's a little bit more information, a little bit more recommendations on that post. So go check it out. Link in the show notes. Uh, if you have any questions, if you try a rosé that you really like and want to share it with me, I'm always down to hear more. Uh, Winston, is there anything else that you would like to share? Take care of yourselves. Support your trans siblings. Yeah. Yes. Um, be good to each other. Yeah. Stand up to Nazis always. And cheers. Cheers. Drink rosé while you do it. Unless you don't want to. You don't have to. But if you think you don't like rosé, please try it. You, you, might, you might just think... We're leaving it in. We're leaving all of this in. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very passionate about this. <laughs> yeah, no, you're an evangelist and I like it. Thank you again to our sponsors for this week. Wink and ZipRecruiter. Go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast for $22 off your first order of wine. And go to ziprecruiter.com slash pairing to post your first job for free. Thanks for listening. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Sherjarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Sherjarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories 
and stay for the wine.